0: Our scripture text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that you may see your face to face may see face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints.
1: I mean, who here doesn't love good news? I mean, don't we love good news? I mean, I know more than a handful of people that aren't looking at the news anymore because there is no good news. I know bad news sells, uh, but we really like good news. And... Um, And and the Bible actually says that's a good thing, good news. I mean, he says in uh, Proverbs 12, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Or it says that gracious words are sweet like the honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the body. Or an apt word is like an apple of gold set in a... um, in a setting of silver. I mean, that's the beauty of good news. We, we want good news. We, we love good news. Well, thankfully, we have good news, even in our text today. Uh, Paul finally hears some good news. You know where we are in the story here. So Paul has planted this church in Thessalonica. It's a Greek city. And uh, he preached the gospel, and he saw faith and love birthed in people, and they converted. They converted. The Spirit convicted them, and it says that they turned from serving idols to serving the living and the true God. They changed. But then opposition quickly arose, and Paul left the city, and then the persecution started. But Paul, as he said, is like a, a nursing mother to them. He cares for them. He's like a father encouraging them. And he's concerned about them, and so he sends Timothy to go encourage him. Now let me remind you, sending Timothy... It's a 200-mile journey by foot. So 10 long days of walking so as to encourage and exhort this people. Can you imagine that journey? Paul, pins and needles, how are they surviving? So Timothy's up there. They're not communicating. They're not calling or writing. It's just silence. And then Timothy finally comes back and tells Paul, this is what I found that their faith was firm and steadfast. And so Paul rejoices. But you can imagine, you hear good news, you're thankful. And, And Paul rejoices and gives thanks. And then he turns to prayer. That's what our passage is. Paul has heard this report, and now he expresses his gratitude, and he begins to pray. And this is really, you know, if you looked at last week, uh, the foundation of biblical fellowship is that we need to be longing for each other and we need to be laboring for each other. That's how God cultivates a people. Well, this is like the other side. If that's the foundation of fellowship, this is the fruit of fellowship, that we begin to give thanks to God for all that he's done in one another's lives, in our own, and we begin to pray that God would continue that work. And so that's all we have today. Paul just rejoices over God's gift in this good report, and then Paul immediately moves to pray for them. I think we're going to learn something about Thanksgiving here. Look with me at verse 6, because uh, really 6 through 9 is all about Thanksgiving. In verse 6 he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, Uh, So Timothy's brought this good news, this good news that their faith is secure. Now, that word for good news is our word for gospel. It's the only time used in the New Testament where it doesn't apply to the gospel. So why does he use it here? My guess would be it's so good news to them that they're continuing in the faith that it's like hearing the gospel again. I I I mean, the reality of their salvation is is producing fruit. And so it's good news about this growing faith. Now, let me make sure you understand what I mean by faith. Because, you know, faith in today's culture is really, it's seen as kind of having no object. It's like a leap in the dark. It's like we just got to believe and and they never attach any object to what you have to believe. Just got to believe and then you'll be fine. Just have faith. Have faith and you'll be okay. Is that what he means here? No, no, no. Paul is rejoicing over the fact that they had faith. And by that, I mean an objective faith, a, a propositional faith. It had an object. There is truth teached. Taught about God being a father, creator, redeemer. About Christ saving through a, through a cross and through a resurrection. It, this faith teaches about us. You know what? As people, we are needy, we're desperate, we're broken. We need to be delivered. It's teaching about our future. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So there's, there's a lot going on about what they believed, what they had faith in. There's an objective piece to it. But there's also a subjective piece believing is doing something. It's actually trusting. This is why years ago I got away from ever saying about asking Jesus in your heart. I understand the sentiment of it, but what asking Jesus in your heart as an expression, it tends to get us to look back at some event that took place. And really the nature of of faith is an ongoing trust. It's an ongoing reminder of I need Jesus today like I needed him yesterday, like I'm going to need him tomorrow. Uh, So there's this ongoing interaction. I'm daily trusting that Jesus will represent me to the Father. As Keith was praying, I'm daily trusting that Jesus will make a way for me to be able to pray and that God will want to hear me, even though my past week was horrible. Uh, So you see that Paul was rejoicing over this good news that they had an objective faith, they believed the right things, and they trusted in it in a daily, ongoing way. That they hadn't given up on God. He's just happy they hadn't given up on God. They hadn't abandoned God. But you see the report also notes that they haven't given up on Paul. You know, Paul cut and run, they said, or so these opponents said. These opponents came in and tried to create all this kind of, you know, kind of undermining Paul's ministry and authority. They said he had ulterior motives. He's here for profit. And Paul's thinking, you know what? The love that we shared, the relationship that we had, maybe it's been tanked. And the report is no. They're still thinking kindly of you. Even though Paul was absent, their hearts had not wandered, but they actually grew fonder towards him. They wanted him to come back. They longed to see him. Uh, so you see this report, can't you imagine? I mean, good news would be like a it'd be like a glass of cold water on just a burning hot day for him. And so what does he do? Well, he rejoices. That's what you do when you hear good noise. Good news, you get excited. I mean, you're thankful look with me at seven, eight, nine, because it really shows us the effect of this good news he says for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith for now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord for what Thanksgiving can we return to God for you and for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God so here's Paul He is in much affliction. I mean, you want to talk about a train wreck. I mean, Philippi in jail, Thessalonica thrown out, Berea thrown out, Corinth, now he's in Corinth, feeling the great pressure that he felt there. He says, in our affliction. When we heard about your news, remember now that that, that when he says, but now that Timothy is coming to us, the impression in Greek is that as soon as he heard the news, he began writing this letter. He began composing this letter for them. So excited was he. Even in affliction, he began to take comfort over the growth of their faith. He was happy. This affliction began to dissipate. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, for now we live. That could be translated, we're alive. We're coming back. We feel like we've been resurrected. We feel like now we've been in the doldrums and despair, worrying about you. Now we feel great, because faith, you're standing fast in faith. This is joy-filling us right now. Here he is in the midst of trial. You know how that feels. Things could be really going difficult for you, but you hear wonderful news, and it just kind of causes the affliction to dissipate. He's so excited over the fact. Do you feel the connection that Paul has with them? I mean, do you feel the bond of affection? Charles Spurgeon tried to word it this way between the preacher and the hearer. He says, Never is the servant of God so full of delight as when he sees the Holy Spirit visiting his hearers, making them to know the Lord and confirming them in that heavenly, heavenly knowledge. On the other hand, if God does not bless the words of his servants, it's like death to them. To be preaching and have no blessing makes them heavy of heart. The chariot wheels are taken off and they drag heavily along. They seem to have no power nor liberty. I mean, the, the joy overseeing people stand fast in faith. So I think it was maybe 1990 or 91. Uh, Carol wasn't with me. We, I went into Czechoslovakia. The wall had just come down. That is the... The Iron Curtain had just come down and and the uh, Berlin Wall had collapsed just a number of months prior and we were taking Bibles and literature into it was Czechoslovakia then and um and we met with this family we had to do it at night. they were leaders in the church they had to draw the curtains we kind of did the circuitous circuitous route to get there. And we get there, and we bring the Bibles, and they begin telling us how they have remained fixed and firm in the faith. I just remember it being surreal. You know, it's at night, the house is dark, we're hearing about all that God had done in them. And we're giving them literature that they're going to be distributing out, because oppression was still there at the, you know, shortly after the wall came down. And I just remember thinking how my life and how any troubles I had just seemed to dissipate when I was thinking about their steadfastness and faith. That's the kind of joy that Paul's feeling. It's incredible. So when you look at this, the, just these few short verses, from six to nine, you see his thankful heart. It, it really provides for us a good picture of what biblical leadership should look like. Biblical leadership should be carrying burden for the souls of their people. Biblical leadership should be, um, should be really feeling the weight of seeing you grow in your faith. This is why we, you know, Paul speaks about this actually in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He says, and apart from other things, I'll explain that in a minute, uh, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, all the whose churches, the churches he planted. He was concerned that those people are growing in faith and love the thing, we, he says, and apart from other things, go back and read the other things in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 to 27. A few shipwrecks in there, a couple nights spent at sea, getting stoned, getting whipped, getting scourged. It's a, it's a litany of sufferings that would make you blush. And he says, those are the other things. What I'm really concerned about is the health of the church. So connected was he to the to the health and well-being of the church. This is why we ask you those intrusive questions, or so they seem, when we're trying to discern your spiritual faith. That's why we we chase you down or try to pursue you and and, and try to probe your heart. That never feels good. Have your heart kind of probed to find out where you are in the faith. This is why we do this. Because good biblical leadership is concerned that you finish well. That's what Paul's doing. But not just to probe and to be burdened for your growth, but also to rejoice in your blessing. Uh, when we see you and some of you are walking strong through difficult times, I've seen you do it through suffering, and yet you continue to hang on by faith with joy. We want to share in that. That's part of the reason why Wednesday night, we're excited about Wednesday night. We're not gonna be able to have, you know, kind of spontaneous testimonies all the time, because we're gonna to try to have you in here and people coming in via Zoom. Uh, but we're going to have testimonies because we want you to be encouraged. Just as leader, Good leadership loves faith. And, and we want to hear that declared. And not just victorious faith, but you know what? We're persevering through difficult times. God hasn't delivered us yet, but we're going to be faithful. And we're going to wait for his deliverance. And so we want to rejoice with you over those things. So I think it's a good picture of biblical leadership. I think it's also a good picture of what you ought to have in terms of biblical friendship. I mean, who doesn't want a friend like Paul? I mean, someone really plying into your heart to make sure that you cross the finish line as you ought? I mean, don't you want that? Don't you want friends in your life, other church members that are intimately acquainted with your difficulties and your struggles, and they can rejoice just as easily? with your successes? I mean, think about what this is from John Wesley's journal. This is his take on biblical friendship. He says, I have no other place under heaven where I can have some friends always at hand of the same judgment, engaged in the same studies, persons who are awakened into full conviction that they have but one work to do on earth who see at a distance what that one work is. He says, who absolutely devote themselves to God, to follow after their Lord, denying themselves, taking up their cross daily, to have even a small number of such friends constantly watching over my soul and administering, as need is, reproof or advice with all plainness and gentleness. It's a blessing I know not where to find in any part of the kingdom. This is what biblical friendship is. To what degree... Are you acquainted with the sufferings and the difficulties of others in this church? To what degree are you rejoicing with them? So when you see God's grace in someone's life, uh, have you thought to give thanks to God for it, like Paul did, and to tell them how you give thanks? I mean, can you imagine if we had a culture of this, where we're really spying out how God's grace is manifesting itself in one another's life, and then we're saying, hey, this is what I see God doing in your life, rejoicing before God and telling them about it. Can you imagine what that would be like? It would be an encouraging place to come. You'd be excited, because sometimes it's hard to see what God's doing in our own lives. That's why we use mirrors, and we can't see many things about ourselves. We need others to point them out. They both should shoulder the blessings with us, but also to share the blessings. So that's all Paul's saying. He's giving thanks to God for this report. But notice what he does from 9 to 10. He moves right from giving thanks to prayer. Now you know, This makes sense to you. I know it does. I mean, if you go to the doctor and, and you're not feeling well and he gives you a great report, you know what, you've been healed, you don't have cancer anymore. What do you say? Thank you, Lord. I mean, you turn right to prayer, you turn right to prayer, you go right to God. Or if you hear a bad report, the doctor says, bad news, you say, oh, God, help me. I mean, that's a legitimate expression for the Christian. We go to God both in blessing and in times of burden. And that's what Paul does. But this is, he's moving from thanksgiving to blessing God, and he begins to pray. Now, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't actually pray, pray here. He is. This is kind of what we call a prayer wish. He's stating his prayer to the Thessalonians, so that they're both encouraged and also instructed as to how to pray. So he's basically telling them how he's praying for them. And by the way, this is a great thing to do. So a lot of times when a text goes out, I've said this to you before, but just for the point of repeating it, and you know, they ask for prayer. And we'll often say praying or praying for you. and That's a wonderful thing to do. And I know you do it. But it's really great to hear how you're going to pray. I'm going to pray. I got a text today, actually, from Nick. He said, I'm praying for you right out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 1. About the foolishness of God. Uh, about the, whiz, about the, the foolishness of men is weakness to God. The gospel is foolishness to men. But it's the power of God to save. I sent him a text back saying, I'm praying for you, that as they hear about the salvation that you're going to preach in Ephesians chapter 2, that they're going to rejoice and that they're going to move forward with works that God has prepared in advance for them to do before the foundations of the world. So we can, that's what Paul's doing here. He's actually telling them how he's going to pray. Look with me at the first request he makes, and it's found in 10 and 11. He's going to pray for them to have maturing faith. He says, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So he's praying for them to grow in faith. Notice, though, first, that he's praying most earnestly, day and night he's praying. Now, don't get confused over that. He probably just means he prays sometimes at night, he prays during the day. He prays day and night, that you're constantly on his mind. We're praying for you. There's a posture of prayer there. But notice to whom he prays. He prays both to God, our God and Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant, friends. This is really important. There's a singular verb that is taking care of two nouns showing that Paul is seeing Jesus Christ to be equal with God the Father. This is an exalted view. This is one of the earliest New Testament letters. And you see this high Christology that he's not, I mean, for him to pray to Jesus and to God means they're equal. So when someone comes along and says, no, 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 Uh, they never believed that Jesus was God. That was the third or fourth century development of the church. They became enamored with Christ. Now you see it right here. He's praying to the same. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, he just prays to Jesus. He assumed the father's in there, but he only references Jesus. So he prays earnestly this triune prayer. And what's he pray? He prays that God would direct his way. In other words, he would smooth out the path because of those hindrances from last week. He prays that he'll smooth out the path. Why? So that he can supply what is lacking in their faith. What does he mean by lacking in their faith? Remember now, five times in the first two chapters, he has commended them for faith. He's impressed with their faith, and yet he's still praying for what is lacking in their faith. Why? We all have gaps in our faith. I mean, none of us fully know everything we need to know. and We're not fully mature in faith. Paul had been there a short time. There are many things to teach him. That's what we're going to find in chapter 4 and chapter 5. He's going to be teaching about sexual purity, about ethic and the worth workplace, about the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's going to be speaking about a lot of things that he wanted to fill the gaps in for their faith, that they had gaps. So he's praying that I want to come supply what is lacking in your faith. So so what do you think is lacking in your faith? What do you need supplied in your faith? Uh, Do you understand that, that a maturing faith is an ever-evolving thing. In other words, faith is continual. It, it keeps growing. It, it never stops. Th- this is one of the deadly mistakes we've made in evangelicalism. Uh, we, we think that once we exercise faith at conversion, then we take it from here. And, and we begin, we got we gotta do this work now. We have to get going on moral change. We've got to begin cleaning up our lives. We gotta we've got to take what God's given us. We've got to build on it. And, and we forget that no, no, no. God has to keep growing us in faith. That that it doesn't it doesn't that's why I don't give an altar call every week. Uh, because altar calls tend to make you rest on the call that you responded to, it leads to what we call decisionism. I made a a decision for Jesus about 14 years ago. No, I'm calling you to faith every week. I'm calling you today to believe this, that you need to grow in faith, that you need to give thanks, that you need to pray. You responding to the words here, you're living by faith. This is the idea, that we're continually growing in faith. It's an active daily before the feet hit the floor. I believe that you are the Son of God who sits at the right hand of God and you will lead me in this day. It's a daily faith. But it's not just continual. It it needs to be supplied because it's communal. We don't grow in a vacuum. You notice that Paul did not ask God to supply what's lacking. Paul asked God to direct his way so that he could supply what's lacking. Why would he do that? Well, Paul knows that God uses the community of faith as an incubator of faith to develop and increase faith within us, that we need one another, that we need to come together around the word through preaching, but through your Bible studies on Wednesday nights or the different nights that you do them, through the spiritual conversations that you have with one another. All these things, these ordinary means of grace, it's not flashy these ordinary means of grace, this is what changes us from glory to glory. This is the one thing, It's when people complain they have not grown much, I usually go to these means of grace. Do you read your Bible? I'm not a legalist, you know, in terms of saying we've got to read your Bible every day. It, those are just the means of grace that we survive in faith and that we grow. They're not sexy, they're not flashy, they're not fast, but, but it's... It's the means that God has ordained for us to grow. It's kind of like eating. You know, sometimes you go out and you have that stupendous meal and you're just thinking about it. But, you know, what sustains you is the daily stuff that you just don't even remember what I ate four days ago, three days ago, five days ago. But I'm standing here because I ate those days. I did eat. I don't remember. It was ordinary, but it was good. And it sustains me. You know, J.C. Ryle speaks about this desire that we have, that we want lightning to happen when we have devotions. We want to feel the power of God. We want to have this experience with God. And when devotions don't bring that heat on, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of dry. He says this, he says, Do you not think you're getting no good from the Bible merely because you don't see the good that day by day? He says the greatest effects are by no means those which make the most noise and the most easily observed. The greatest effects are often silent, quiet, hard to detect at the time they're being produced. Think of the influence on the moon upon the earth or the air upon the human lungs. Remember how silently the dew falls and how imperceptibly the grass grows? There may be far more doing than you think in your soul by your Bible reading. Don't mistake imperceptive change for no change. We need to be together encouraging one another, even though it's often difficult being together. In fact, uh, Bonhoeffer, just one more quote so I can exhaust him in your life, but it applies and it, it comes out of this yearning for kind of fellowship where he was growing in ways that he hadn't before. He says this, he says, Into the community you were called. In the community of the called you hear the cross. You, excuse me. Into the community of the called you bear your cross, your struggle, and your prayers. You're not alone, even in death. And on the last day, you will only be one member of the great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus your solitude can only be hurtful to you. So many people think that we kind of embrace this this individual spiritual pietism where we're just going to connect with God and we're going to be together alone with God, and my Bible, and my favorite Internet preacher, and, and it's God and me. It doesn't work that way. And after 30 years of ministry, I can affirm you, it does not work that way. It works in community, as awkward and as, as often squirrely as it can get sometimes. Uh, so, so he prays that they would mature in faith. And the way they're going to mature in faith, coming together around the Word as a community continually growing and continually encouraging i I hope you can pray for one another in that way and encourage others toward that okay the second thing he prays for is this increase in love look with me at verse 12. he says and may the lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do to you now remember They had, he had commended them in chapter 1, verse 3. He said that their labors of love were noted. He commended them for their love, but he's praying for their love to even increase. Notice that he doesn't pray that they're to act more loving. He is asking the Lord Jesus to give them an increasing and abounding love for one another. He's appealing to both the Father and the Son because that is where love comes from. We just can't muster up the feelings of love. The way that we love is by being reminded of the nature of the gospel. If you've been born again, then you've tasted the forgiveness of God. You've received the acceptance of God. You are loved by God. And the gospel is not just an example of what love looks like, but it actually enables us to love people. This is what Paul, this is what John's saying in First John 4, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, this is what we're called to do. We're, we're called to walk in light of the gospel. So if we are growing in faith over the knowledge that the creator God has saved us through Jesus Christ, forever adopted us, forgiven us, you bear no wrath You bear no disapproval of God. You can come to him even laden with your guilt and sin, and he is a God of peace to you. You come to him, and your heart begins to be filled with love. Not just for the brethren, but for all people. Love is not a feeling. I don't want you to expect to feel it. That love increasing is us making the choice based upon what God has done for us that we're going to begin loving people in sacrificial ways. And not just the brethren, but one another. People that are different than we are. The pagans can love one another. The pagans go back to their own tribes and love. Uh, But we love people of different creed, color, conduct. We we love because he has first loved us. And we walk in that by obedience, not waiting for the, the temperature to rise for us to do that. So when you think about your own love, do you feel that it needs to increase? When you think about your love for others in this church, or even others outside, have you ever prayed for it to increase, or do you feel like you're topped out—that you got plenty of love? We have to pray for these things. We have to ask God. God, increase. I told when I was in the middle of this week, I said, "You just got to pray for me to love more. You got to pray that I love more. I I want. I see my responses to people when they say certain things in certain ways, and." What, what immediately comes out in me is not always sweet smelling and pleasing. And so I need to love more. I need to respond rightly in love to people, even that aren't acting in a loving way. I need this. I think you need this. This is really, I think, the great secret apologetic of the church. You know, we often think about apologetics and how we have to defend the truth of the gospel and we have to prove the existence of God. And the big question is, how can you believe in God if there's evil? And we go after these big apologetical questions and we we all get knotted up trying to figure out how to answer it. One of the greatest apologetics for the church is just to love people. You know, Francis Schaeffer spoke about this. He was a great apologist, actually, in the um, mid and um, late 20th century. And uh, he worked in Europe for a number of years, and of course he pastored in America. And what he said was the church has to be these two twin towers of power, if you will. The church has to preach purity, doctrinal purity, has to be doctrinally sound. But the church has to be a loving community. If you have purity and no love, it's dead orthodoxy. If you have all love, we just love everybody, but no doctrinal purity, then it just slides into some form of socialism or just some form of kind of a... a, It just morphs and changes. There's no structure to the love. You need both. And and the reason he said this is because the doctrinal purity leads people to salvation. uh, But the communal love shows the beauty of the gospel so the way that we love people sacrificially those that don't deserve it the way we love one another that shows the church as beautiful now oftentimes the church is being often confronted as judgmental or critical now there's reasons for that that aren't true but but is the church seen as beautiful because we're willing to love so when paul prays may your love increase and abound and by the way God answered Paul's prayer. In 2 Thessalonians, he writes, and we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as right, because the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He prayed it in letter one, and he says it was answered in letter two. So so we want to pray that we might love. So what ways would love look different for you? How, How would it look? Would it look inviting someone over to get to know them, encourage them in the faith, take them out to lunch? Would it involve you not speaking with all the friends that you have already established in the church by, by speaking to someone who's new here, maybe outside the service? What would love look like? Would it be doing some sacrificial act for a neighbor or a friend? How would it look? I know you're thinking. I don't know if this applies to me. Let me assure you it does. And so what will love look like for you? And what would it look like for you to increase in love for one another? Don't let the day pass without giving answer to yourself over that question. Otherwise, you run the risk of being a hearer and not a doer. Okay, the last thing he prays for is that they would be found blameless. In other words, he's praying that they'll finish well. Look with me at verse 13. In verse 13, he says, so that they may est- or excuse me, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So you kind of see this faith, love, and hope triad, if you will. You have the the faith in God. We're growing in faith. We're growing in the knowledge that His gospel has saved us. And and we sense the love of God as we see the cross of Christ. And so then our love increases. And as our love increases, our life begins to change. And guess what? We're maturing towards holiness so that on that final day, our hearts will be established blameless and holy before, he says literally, in the presence of God. So Paul is praying, they finish well. Paul is praying that on that final day, their hearts are blameless. Do you not want that? That is what our future holds. And and Paul is saying, look to that final day. Paul's not calling for Christian perfectionism. He's not saying you're going to be perfect in this life. He's saying you'll be perfect on the day of the Lord Jesus when he returns. But these days right now are marching you toward it. In other words, he's not giving us a license to live any which way we want because, hey, on that day, you're in great shape. No, it's on that day, you're in great shape. That's why you begin living a holy life now. And he talks about that final day when Jesus returns. And we'll talk about this in chapter 4 just in a few weeks. On that day, he returns with the saints. Who are these saints? Well, it could be angels. In Greek, it's simply the holy ones. It could be the angels, as it is in Zechariah 14. Or it could be those saints who have died before that the Lord brings with them. And every question you've ever had about the rapture, we will answer in two weeks. (laughs) Two weeks. Two weeks. Just kidding. So, so that's what Paul's praying for. that They would finish well. That, that On the day the Lord Jesus comes, our hearts will be blameless. Do you notice what Paul's not praying for? Paul's not praying for health. He's not praying for wealth. He's not praying for the persecutions to stop. He's not praying for the problems to be resolved of life. Th- these are the things that we put out on the prayer chain. There is a place for those things, no doubt. I've asked myself. But do you notice what he's not praying for? He's not praying for the things that we usually go to first. What he's asking for is, God, grant us the grace to be a body that we can mature in the faith. Grant us the grace that we can increase in love so that the world sees us as beautiful because of the way we love each other and others. God, help us to finish well. Give me a mind to to think about that final day. How often do you think about that final day? Many of us, it really comes up quite infrequently. It's a big day, the day of the Lord. It's a big day. Maybe you need to write it on a calendar. Maybe you need to pray for it. Maybe you need to pray for the knowledge of the brevity of your own life. I used to pray Psalm 39 all the time show me how fleeting my life is. Let me see that my life is a vapor. And then all of a sudden we started having health problems and Carol said, stop praying that prayer. <laughs> but but it's, it's a good prayer to remind us of the brevity. So I mentioned a few, a few um, probably a month ago about the hourglass, you know, the Sand's going through it's really a, it's a metaphor for life. Carol went and got me an hourglass. I have one on my desk now And uh, because I, I've loved it as a metaphor of life because you know you turn it over and that thing is so full of little Granulars these small particles of sand and it's moving so Slowly you look at it you go back you look at it. It doesn't seem to change and Then you get busy with life and you go back to it and the things half empty and all of a sudden you how did it all go down? And I tell you, it's a metaphor. You're going to wake up, and 10 years is gone. 10 years is gone. And for some of you, half that sand's gone. It's gone. The brevity of life wakes us up to living in a way and praying in a way that's radically different. That's what Paul's trying to drive in us now. Live so as to finish well. You cannot finish well if you think you will go on forever. That reality of the brevity of our life is hugely instructive for us, particularly those in your 20s and 30s, because you just think you got a long runway. And it goes really quick. So here's what Paul's doing. He's thanking God for the report that he got. Uh, let us be a people to give thanks to God and vocalize your thanksgiving to the ones that you're thankful to God for. Even today, one person. Where have you seen the grace of God in their life? Just give a word of thanks to God for his grace and then tell them that you thank God for it. And then pray. And then turn to pray. Pray for the the increase of love. Pray for maturing of faith. And, And let this be the content in your prayer. So my prayer life changed when I began just going from extemporaneous prayer. I'm sitting there. After I read my Bible, I begin to pray. My prayer life changed when I began taking all of Paul's prayers and I just took his petitions in those prayers. I made them my petitions. And then I put you in them and my family in them. And it really began to give direction and power and hope. I'm praying the scriptures for my friends. That's what we do with this. This is a prayer from Paul that we can be instructed by. So Thanksgiving and prayer. It's kind of the, the bookends. It's the fruit of fellowship. If longing and laboring are the foundation of fellowship, then then thanksgiving and prayer are the fruit of it. So let's ask God that we might be such a church, such a people, and then I'll pray for us in just just a moment.